If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. It's only college athletes that are somehow excluded from what every other American can get. And I, and I find that as a legal scholar, I find that as an attorney, I find that as a human to be wrong. And what I, what I think motivates me about about Ed O'Bannon's case was that it wasn't about trying to you know, make anyone rich or wasn't, a, you know, the, the arguments really weren't even about money. They were about decency. Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, we speak to attorney, professor, and writer for Sports Illustrated, Michael McCann, about his new book, Court Justice, about Ed O'Bannon and his case against the National Collegiate Athletic Association, as well as Colin Kaepernick's collusion case against the National Football League. Also, I've got some choice words about Donald Trump floating the idea that he would issue a pardon for the first black heavyweight champion of the world, Jack Johnson, and why Jack Johnson should say to Trump, pardon this. I also have Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down awards, a very special Colin Kaepernick watch from this week, and so much more. But first, let's go to Michael McCann. So first and foremost, I want to talk to you about this book you wrote with Ed O'Bannon, Court Justice. Um, Could you explain to my audience why this book, why now? Why did you choose this as a project for you to take on? So the the project came about in part because during Ed's trial in 2014, I had met with him. And when, when meeting with him, I joked, have you ever been to New Hampshire? Because usually the answer to that is no. And he said no. And I said, well, well, look, when this thing's over, you got to come on out to speak to my students. And after the Supreme Court declined to review his victory in the Ninth Circuit, I called him. I said, you know, Ed, you remember you said you'd, you'd come on out to New Hampshire. And he said, I did. And he came on out to New Hampshire to do a, his first public appearance about the case. And he could finally talk about his thoughts on the case, obviously, during the case itself, which took six, seven years, he wasn't able to speak publicly on most aspects about it. So it was a great opportunity for him to talk about what happened and a great opportunity for myself and my school. And while he was there, we 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 had dinner and we talked about doing a book. And that led to court the Court Justice Book Project that was published this past February. So, uh, you know, I, I know having covered the trial and, and really other aspects of the case, I was really familiar with it, and I, I think I caught I got sort of the core of what Ed was striving for with the case, and that it's different than what I think a lot of uh, people think. I think they they think that he brought the case because it would make him rich. He brought the case knowing he wouldn't make anything from it. In fact, mm. you know, he really loses money. If you, and I I said to him, you know, you kind of lose money because you're you're bringing a case that you know you're not going to get anything, and you're giving up all this time. But he said, well, I believe in a cause and it's not about money. So uh, I, I think the book was able to, to flesh that out. 
Let's talk about that. I agree with the cause. It's not about money. I've always been very interested in the life of Kurt Flood because thinking about the kind of character it takes to bring these kinds of lawsuits forward because they can be a lot of risk, a a lot of patience, a lot of drudgery, a little reward or reward that you won't see but the generations to come will see. Um, So what is it about Ed, his history, his character that you think propelled him to take this on? Because it could have been any manner of players who chose to be on the front lines of this. What is it about Ed? So I, I think part of Ed's motivation stems from you know, his longstanding concerns or aggravations with the NCAA, that the NCAA had engaged in practices years ago that affected Ed. It affected him when he was recruited by UNLV, uh, which, of course, occurred at the time when Jerry Tarkanian got into trouble. And it then occurred when he starts up at UCLA. And while he's working out with another player, uh, a couple of NCAA investigators come to him and basically tell him he has to talk immediately. He thought it was like the FBI had showed up. He never had a chance to call home or wouldn't even think about getting a lawyer. He's 17 years old at the time. That he thought it was just inappropriate. I mean, really, at the end of the day, he thought that the NCAA had engaged in abusive practices, not, you know, when I, when I use the word abusive, I mean it in the context of just really treating people poorly. And he felt that he had received some of that, but he also had a life, right? He was a basketball superstar. He played in the NBA for a while. He played in Europe. He retires. He's home. Uh, he and his wife have three kids there. You know, life is going, going great. He's 35 years old. And, and he sees uh, a buddy of him tells him you're in this video game. And Ed was not a video game player, but he went over to his friend's house and there he was in this video game. And and Ed thought, there's something wrong about that. He's not a lawyer, but he said, there's just something, there's something intrinsically wrong where this game is being sold for $60. All these people are buying it and the players aren't getting anything from it. You know, you don't need to be a lawyer to know that there's something off about that. So I think what, what propelled Ed was this sense of righting a wrong. That it wasn't about you know trying to get money or anything like that. Again, he he loses money probably from the case if you value his time and his travel. But it, it's about trying to bring justice to what he considers to be uh, injustice and in how college athletes are treated. Mm. And what about yourself? Like, ha- have you gone on any kind of evolution in terms of how you view the NCAA and its relationship to players? Yeah, I mean, I think in the sense you know I, I'm in a different role because. As a legal analyst, I really strive to be as neutral as I can in terms of my writing for Sports Illustrated, and I I try to bring out both sides of an argument, and with the law in in a way that's easier to do, because one could say, here are the legal arguments, pro and con, without getting at the moral or social aspects of them. But when I bring in some of the social aspects, it's really hard to look at how college athletes are treated and not think that there's something wrong. I mean, this is, I I think this is, it's clear when looking at how athletes are used in commercialized products, how everyone around them generates, in some cases, a lot of money, in some cases, not a lot of money, but still some, that the system itself is really designed in a way that excludes the labor. And, you know, while it's true that college athletes 
in some cases get full rides to college, and that's obviously worth a lot of money. Uh, being somebody who teaches at a university, I, I certainly realize how much money that can be, but it doesn't factor in the value of athletes when they appear in commercial products. And that's something that if you or I or anyone else, uh, or if our name, image, or likeness is used, we have control over that. We have a stake in that. It's only college athletes that are somehow excluded from what every other American can get. And I, and I find that as a legal scholar, I find that as an attorney, I find that as a human to be wrong. And what I, what I think motivates me about, about Ed O'Bannon's case was that it wasn't about trying to you know, make anyone rich or wasn't, a, you know, the, the arguments really weren't even about money. They were about decency and, and doing the right thing. And, and that really gravitated to me. Mm. I'm sure you're asked this all the time about the book, but what's the trajectory of the NCAA at this point uh, in terms of its relationship with athletes? Where do you see this going over the next 5, 10, 20 years? Because the current system really does seem um, unsustainable. Yeah, Dave, I think you're right. I think the current system is unsustainable. What I think the NCAA has shown is that when it's pushed, it makes it, 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 it only takes action when it's pushed. I mean, I think that that's clear, right? That, you, that, that the vehicle of forcing the NCAA to make changes is not waiting around because the NCAA has a committee structure that makes it slow and deliberate. And that's not always a bad thing. But when athletes are only in college for a limited amount of time, a slow, deliberate process can really exclude some from getting what they ought to get. And what I think what we'll see happen is that, for one, the O'Bannon case has led to some changes, uh, including providing athletes with the full cost of attendance. That's not a, you know, it doesn't make anyone rich, but it gives them some extra money, uh, something that accounts for their time in college and that some of them are in different locations where the cost of living is different. The Jenkins case against the NCAA will apply other pressure. That case is about whether or not athletes should be able to negotiate the value of their athletic scholarships or whether the NCAA can have a rule that says they're capped. Um, you know, an antitrust perspective would say there's something wrong with competing businesses all agreeing to cap the value of what the players can get paid. So that could lead to some changes. But I, but honestly, I think the big changes will come probably through conferences. I think a lot of the conferences are becoming autonomous. I mean, I mm -hmm. think we're seeing, you know, conferences take on more of, of their own role. And that could lead to changes as well. But this is a long, this is a long road. There, there won't be swift action. We're not going to see probably radical changes overnight. But I do think over time, we're seeing some changes. Mm. Now, speaking of cases and legal struggles, I wanted to switch lanes a little bit while we have you here and talk about Colin Kaepernick. Um, he, can you explain a little bit about like what he's doing? Is the distinctions because it's it's complicated? Is he suing the NFL? Is he trying to bring them to arbitration? Is I mean, and how do you prove collusion? Can you explain it legally? Because a lot of times people use a shorthand that doesn't exactly explain what's happening. Yeah, sure. So it's an arbitration right now. It's, it's through the, an arbitration vehicle. It could become a lawsuit, but at, right now it's being resolved internally, if you will, with a, a special master who basically is acting as a judge, but the, the master is not in this capacity a judge. Uh, it's, it's, it's an arbitration forum. And the basic argument that Kaepernick 
is bringing is that he's the victim of collusion. And collusion means two or more teams or at least one team in the league have conspired against him to deny him of a collectively bargained right. And in this case, it's the right to sign with an NFL team. So he has to – so, so for example, if he shows that, that uh, the, the Kansas City Chiefs don't want to sign him because of his stance on the national anthem, that's not collusion, right? He has to show that someone on the Chiefs and someone on the Jets or you know, name whatever fact pattern that they talked, maybe through a text, maybe through an email. But there, there's some kind of organized effort to deny him of the chance to play in the NFL. And that's, of course, hard to show. He has to have some kind of evidence. It can't just be mere parallel conduct. You know, a lot of people have noted it's strange, and it is strange, that no team has signed him, particularly given that there are so many quarterbacks that, from any objective standpoint, aren't as good as him, who have signed while he's been out of the league. But that in and of itself doesn't prove collusion. He has to show that there's some kind of communication. Or maybe he has it. I don't know. Uh, Barry Bonds, as we know, brought a collusion case against baseball, and he wasn't able to show that there was evidence. But other players have brought collusion cases against baseball back in the 80s, mm-hmm. and they did. So you know, it really is going to come down to what he has and what his lawyers have. And, and, of course, there's now depositions going on where Commissioner Goodell and other people are being – deposed, maybe they'll say things that lend uh, lend support to a collusion case, but we'll see. But but when this gets resolved by the NFL, he can still go to court. He can file a lawsuit. It's hard to overcome an arbitration award, it, it, as we know with Tom Brady and other, other players that have tried that, but it's still possible. So he can play this out, but but it, but in truth, it's, it's a hard case because it isn't about whether he's whether he's being treated wrongly. I mean, I think a lot of people would argue that there's that there's something wrong about his exclusion from the NFL, but he has to show that the exclusion is part of some kind of organized effort. Now, uh, Gene Orza, the famous lawyer involved in the MLB collusion case of the 1980s that you referenced, he's talked about how the the key to victory in that case was establishing, and you should correct me if I'm wrong about this, but establishing inference rather than needing that kind of smoking gun. Is that relevant here at all? Can you prove collusion by establishing inference? I think it's hard because there are always alternative. I mean, well, let me, let me, let me backtrack. It, it depends on what the inference is referring to, right? If the inference is only nobody will sign him, henceforth there's collusion, I don't think that's enough. If the inference is based on some kind of dialogue, of which there's an electronic record or written record between scouts or assistant GMs that don't necessarily say, let's not have Colin Kaepernick, but maybe offer really damning comments about him, that one could infer from those comments some kind of collusion. Yeah, then on that lens. But if it's only nobody will sign him, I'm skeptical that that would be enough. Mm. And scouts talking, that sounds like the sort of thing where, you know, it's it's not the boss talking, but it's being talked about at lower levels and then maybe filtered up to the boss. That's not enough to prove collusion, though, right? Assistant GMs or scouts, that's not enough to do it, is it? You know, uh, I, I think it depends. I, I think if Kaepernick could show that that assistant GM is part of the evaluation process and that 
let's say two assistant, I mean, obviously we don't know that this is true, but just hypothetically, you know, two assistant GMs say, you know, let's talk to our bosses and really dissuade them from signing Kaepernick. And that to me could be collusion because if, if that assistant GM has some kind of real influence over the decision-making process, uh, I, I'd argue that that, that, that to me uh, shows some kind of organized effort to deprive him of a right. Now, whether he can show that it was enough, I, I guess we'll, we'll find out. We don't really have enough precedent here to know, but I would be concerned if I were the NFL if there's that kind of evidence. Now, I've heard strongly sourced rumors, and I'm sure you've heard these as well, that one of the ways that Kaepernick may be trying, and his attorneys may be trying to make this case, is looking at the very public comments of Donald Trump about owners, him saying explicitly that owners are scared to sign him because they're scared of a Trump tweet, and he's made comments um, of that nature. Um, Is that a legal standing at all, to say that there's some collusion going on if there's this sort of, uh, and I think this actually is related to a lot of Trump issues, frankly, but like just him saying these things, is that enough of a legal standing to say, wait a minute, that's collusion? And I guess in my head, I'm thinking like, just because he does an interview where he says he got rid of Comey for the Russian stuff, is that enough to say that there's obstruction? Like, does that rise to the level of something you can take to court? So I don't think directly in the sense that if, if Trump says don't sign Kaepernick, which is what he said, right? And basically, so uh, that in and of itself, just, just that alone wouldn't be collusion because he's not part of the collective bargaining agreement, right? That he's, uh, he's a third party in this context. That said, if those comments was served as a catalyst for teams to talk, and in the course of those conversations, teams said what you just said, Dave, that, wow, we got to be careful with Kaepernick because we know the president will criticize us on Twitter. And who knows? I mean, he's the president. He has all sorts of powers, right, in terms of uh, promoting legislation that could affect uh, stadium finance issues. There are all sorts of ways in which the president could be uh, very influential. So if those comments served as a catalyst, for owners or executives to talk, yeah, I, I think they would be relevant to a collusion argument. But the president himself making those comments wouldn't be enough. That just because he's just not part of the collective bargaining agreement. Mm, that, that that's fascinating to me. And I mean, and if you this is a tough question, but if you were advising Colin Kaepernick, um, would you be advising him to take this course of going through arbitration? Would you? I mean, I know you've written things about filing with the EEOC or going to the NLRB under Section 7. Um, I was wondering if you could go into that and think, and if you think that the burden of proof would, would be as high, if that might be a smarter course. Well, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, I, if I were advising him, I'd really want to know what his goal is. Right? I mean, I think that's the hard part of the story, where if his goal is to get back to the NFL as quickly as possible— then I would I would caution him that if he goes to the EEOC, uh, if he has his union take other actions under labor law, I mean, these are all devices that he could employ if he files a separate, maybe a defamation lawsuit. I mean, there are all sorts of ways he could sue the president conceivably. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's, there are all different things he could do that use the law but I would want to know, I would want to test his temperature. I'd want to say, you know, what do you want to, where do you want to be 
in six months? Where do you want to be a year from now? Do you want to fight the fight knowing that by doing so, your chances of getting back to the NFL while you're, you're still in your prime are going to go way down? But, but you believe so firmly in the cause that you're willing to do it? If he says yes to that, then yeah, I, I would explore the EEOC as a possibility where he could file a complaint. And that would trigger an investigation into workplace discrimination. He could argue that his race is a factor. I mean, I'm not saying this will lead to liability, but he could bring in other legal processes if he wanted to. He hasn't yet done that, but it's something that I'm sure he's contemplated. I'm sure his lawyers have talked to him about. Mm, this, this is fascinating stuff. Um, I, I really do appreciate the time, Michael. Uh, one thing I always ask my guests before they go is, uh, it's a little bit of an off-topic question from what we've the heady issues we've been discussing, but what kind of music you listen to when either you do your work or you work out? Like, what do you listen to? What were you listening to when you were writing Court Justice with Ed O'Bannon? What, what do you, what, what, what's the kind of music that either soothes your soul or gets you hyped up to do the work? Yeah, I really like Third Eye Blind. No one's ever said that in all see? our years of doing the podcast. They're probably my favorite band of all time. Uh, I like REM as well. I'm dating myself a little bit, but uh, those, those would be the bands that I probably listen to the most. Right on. Michael McCann, thank you so much for joining us here on the Edge of Sports Podcast. Really do appreciate the time. Hey, anytime, Dave. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much, Michael McCann. We'll be back right after this, after a quick word from The Nation magazine. Okay, look, these are difficult times in which we live. I don't need to tell you that. But I do need to tell you this. There's a famous quote that if you could live without government and with newspapers or with government and without newspapers, you take with newspapers and no government time and again. In other words, we need journalism to hold the powerful to account. And no magazine has done that for a longer period of time with a deeper amount of politics and insight than The Nation magazine. They are the sponsor of this podcast, and you can subscribe to them at thenation.com slash subscribe. There's a lot of free stuff at thenation.com, but if you want to get to even deeper journalism and to what's in the print issue of the magazine, you do need to subscribe. The features this week are really good. You've got Janet Bell on African-American leaders of the civil rights movement, and you've got Victor Picard on Facebook, a terrific article. In the books and arts section, you've got Richard Evans on David Canadine's view from Whitehall, Adam Kirsch on Alfred Doblin's Berlin, Allison Hobbs on Wallace Thurman's The Blacker the Berry, and Bijan Steven on David Byrne's American Utopia. This is amazing stuff. It's the sort of things you read and you feel smarter for having done it. So please take my advice and go to thenation.com slash subscribe. And remember, when you support the nation, you are also supporting the continual existence of this podcast. And now I've got some choice words about Donald Trump and the idea of him pardoning Jack Johnson. Okay, look. Donald Trump is a racist and a bigot. He has a 50-year history that demonstrates this time and again. And I could write, as many have, yet another scroll-length listing of the man's racial perversions from 
housing discrimination in his youth, to his promotion of the racist birther theory against President Obama, to his equivocation on condemning the Klan in Charlottesville, to his reference just this week to breeding, quote-unquote, when discussing immigration. But at this point, if you still need proof of his gutter politics, then you either don't care or are sympathetic to the ideology he has mainstreamed and we're just wasting each other's time. Frankly, I'd be shocked that you're listening to this podcast. But it is Trump's own history and politics that explains why it took people aback over the weekend when Trump tweeted that he was considering a pardon of the first black heavyweight champion, Jack Johnson. The great Jack Johnson was an anti-racist hero a century ago who first had to flee the country and then spent time in prison for crossing state lines with a white woman. That was the charge. He would cross the state lines with a woman named Lucy Cameron, who later became his wife. In an ugly era of ascendant white supremacy, the charges were racist payback for Johnson's, in the words of W.E.B. Du Bois, unforgivable blackness. On Saturday, this is what Trump tweeted. Sylvester Stallone called me with the story of heavyweight boxing champion Jack Johnson. His trials and tribulations were great, his life complex and controversial. Others have looked at this over the years. Most thought it would be done, but yes, I am considering a full pardon. And he capitalized F on full. Now, it's worth noting that exoneration or a pardon for Jack Johnson has been a project of John McCain since 2004, and Trump giving the credit to Sylvester Stallone instead of McCain as McCain battles brain cancer is just more evidence as if needed of Trump's cruel pettiness. Now, I've written in the past why I think this government lacks the ethical standing to either exonerate or pardon Johnson 72 years after his death. Last January 2017, this is what I wrote. Jack Johnson is too important a historical figure to be used as a prop by right-wing politicians. Johnson lived a rebel's life, and his persecution by this government is precisely part of what makes him such a powerful symbol of resistance to this day. He was both brash and uncompromising in an era when public lynchings against black men took place on a weekly basis. We are a country that just used the political tool of 18th and 19th century slaveholders, the Electoral College, to elect a white supremacy sympathizer, even though he received three million fewer votes than his opponent. This is a sick system, and it lacks the moral authority to pardon Jack Johnson for any reason other than its own public relations. It's not for us to forgive Jack Johnson. The opposite is the case. This is still the case. Yet what is even more repellent today is the thought that Donald Trump would be the one to quote-unquote pardon Johnson. First and foremost, a pardon means that Johnson did something wrong and that guilt must be acknowledged. The language should be that of exoneration. Second, Donald Trump not only lacks the credibility to either pardon or exonerate Jack Johnson, he does not even have the moral standing to have Jack Johnson's name in his mouth. This is Donald Trump, who still believes that the exonerated Central Park Five are guilty. Just ask yourself what Donald Trump would be saying if he were around in Jack Johnson's heyday. As Grand Valley State Professor Lewis Moore, who wrote this incredible book called I Fight for a Living, Boxing and the Battle for Black Manhood, this is what uh, Lewis Moore said to me. A hundred plus years ago, Trump would have hated Jack Johnson. 
He'd hate him for his independence. His very existence challenged what white men like Trump believed. Trump would be just like those other politicians, scheming ways to go after Johnson. In Johnson's day, the same white politicians that tried to stop him from fighting also turned a blind eye to lynchings. They are the same politicians like Trump who demanded that black men die for supposed crimes, even if they were innocent. It's understandable why Jack Johnson's relatives want his name cleared. It should also be more than understandable why Donald Trump is not the person to do it. Donald Trump would have despised Jack Johnson, and the feelings would have been very mutual. And now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up and just sit your ass down. The Just Stand Up Award this week goes to the manager of the Liverpool Football Club, Liverpool FC, Jurgen Klopp. Jurgen Klopp spoke for another vote on Brexit in Britain. And he spoke out at length to The Guardian about why Brexit, quote-unquote, makes no sense at all. And I want to read to you something uh, about his comments, about what he said about Brexit. Uh, This is what he said. He said, History has always shown that when we stay together, we can sort out problems. When we split, then we start fighting. There was not one time in history where division creates success. So for me, Brexit still makes no sense. Look, there are a lot of ways to look at the Brexit issue. There are certainly a lot of reasons to crack up the European Union. But so much of Brexit was passed on the basis of anti-immigrant hysteria, anti-refugee hysteria, with the most right-wing racist politicians pushing for its passage. To have Jurgen Klopp of Liverpool uh, speak out against this is very significant, and it's worth giving him the Just Stand Up Award. The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award Sit your ass down. goes to Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney did the most Willard Mitt Romney thing that Willard Mitt Romney does, which is he went to a Utah jazz game because he wants to be the next senator from the state of Utah, and he taunted my man Russell Westbrook, taunted him when he got his fourth foul. There was Mitt Romney in a suit with a Utah jazz jersey over the suit, throwing up uh, four fingers at Russell Westbrook when he drew his fourth foul. Look, there's a ton of pictures on the web of Mitt Romney with his Boston Celtics gear back when he was governor of the state of Massachusetts. He is a Fairweather fan, the same way he blasted Donald Trump and then met with him to try to be Secretary of State and then accepted Trump's endorsement to be Senator from Utah. This guy, I swear to you, if Mitt Romney thought that there would be a way that he could steal your watch by shaking your hand, he would be giving you the three triple pumps up and down. I mean, I I just, I do not like him taunting Russell Westbrook. I don't like it one little bit. So Mitt Romney, please, sit your ass down. Who let the dogs out? And now it's time for the part of the show that we call Kaepernick Watch, about the latest comings and goings with Colin Kaepernick. And this week we got a big one. Because this week Colin Kaepernick was in Amsterdam where Amnesty International gave him its most prestigious human rights award, the 2018 Ambassador of Conscience Prize for his public opposition to racial injustice. Previous award recipients include folks you might have heard of like Nelson Mandela, Malala, the woman from Pakistan who withstood violence to get an education, and the great Harry Belafonte. Now, when Colin Kaepernick received this award, there were a couple of cool things that went down. First and foremost, it was presented to him by his former teammate, Eric Reed, the first person to take a knee with Colin Kaepernick. 
And second of all, Colin Kaepernick used his time at the microphone to say the following words about police violence. Here's what he said. Is the people's unbroken love for themselves that motivates me even when faced with dehumanizing norms of a system that can lead to the loss of one's life over simply being black. Seeking the truth, finding the truth, telling the truth, and living the truth has been and always will be what guides my action. This is an award that I share with all the countless people throughout the world combating the human rights violations of police officers and their uses of oppressive and excessive force. Thank you, Colin Kaepernick. Thank you for continuing to stand strong. And I got to tell you, Jamel Hill put out an interesting tweet this week where she said that in 20 years, the NFL would even be having some sort of like person of conscience award in the name of Colin Kaepernick that they would be giving out to people. And I don't know about that, but I do know this. The NFL is on the wrong side of history. I mean, the idea that Colin Kaepernick, who wins this kind of award from Amnesty International, has no place in the NFL, says so much about the moral compass of this league. I've said it before and I'll say it again. This is a stain on the National Football League to rival their covering up of concussions and their covering up of domestic violence. The fact that this league has no place for Colin Kaepernick speaks volumes. Hey everybody, this is Dave Zirin from the Edge of Sports Podcast. We are trying to add all kinds of bells and whistles to this pod. To do that, we need more folks who can sustain its existence. Go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. That is where you'll find us. If you become a patron, you'll see you get all kinds of little treats. But it's so important that people help us sustain and do the work. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. And you can give five bucks a month, ten bucks a month, or if you're feeling mighty generous, a hell of a lot more than that. And all of that helps us do the kind of work that we're trying to do on the regular. Patreon.com slash Edge of Sports Pod. And now back to the broadcast. And now a little addition on the show. I want to read a tribute to Manu Ginobili that I wrote back in 2012. I want to do this because Manu Ginobili is now over 40 years old. He, as I'm doing this podcast, just led the San Antonio Spurs to a Game 4 victory over the defending champion Golden State Warriors, and he did it with all kinds of moves that you see the old dudes do at the YMCA. And man, I love Manu Ginobili, and when the crowd chanted Manu, I got the goosebumps going from head to toe, from the rooter to the tutor. So this really encapsulates why I love Manu Ginobili. And I wrote this tribute after learning that Manu Ginobili had been named 31st out of the top 50 players in the NBA. Look, I have no problem with Manu being ranked 31st on the slam top 50. Age injuries and male pattern baldness have definitely taken their toll on the man. And yet, if we were making a list of NBA players who keep opposing coaches awake at night come playoff time, sucking their thumbs and clutching their blankies, Manu, despite looking every day of his age, is without question in the top five. What is it that's made this six foot six, 200 pound sixth man with average hops so devastating to the nerves of opponents? It's not his size, speed, or athleticism. It's not even fearing the glare of those championship rings. In a word, and this is just my Manu theory, it's soccer. Manu is the master of applying to hoops three cornerstones of soccer. He's the master at these three staples to such a degree 
his fellow Argentinian Lionel Messi probably festers with secret jealousy. The first is, of course, flopping. If an opposing player so much as breathes on Manu, he'll fall to the ground and twitch like Sonny Corleone at a deserted toll booth. Everyone knows it. Everyone waits for it. Yet somehow, like a Jedi mind trick, if Jedis were really, really lame, he convinces the ref that they actually saw a foul. Manu's second sense of soccer is evident in how he uses his two steps in one of his whirling dervish drives to the hoop. Manu rings every last bit of capital from those two steps. He moves right, he moves left, he moves up, down, over, and under. He does everything but the tango. Possibly Dwayne Wade is the current master of this technique uh, that's otherwise known as the Euro step. But every time Wade goes to the hole, he should pay Manu royalties. The third soccer element is what he does to the ball on one of those drives once he is airborne. Just as the best soccer players bend the ball to make it defy physics like a U Darvish curve, Manu spins the ball off the glass in wondrous ways and from ridiculous angles. Once it kisses the backboard, he can make the spinning globe bend and fall right through the hoop. He's part Maravich, part Gervin, and part Minnesota Fats. That's a pool player. But the number one reason that Manu makes opposing coaches weep for their mommies come playoff time is that he's that special once-in-a-decade kind of clutch. He's not clutch like Kobe or Carmelo in isolation. He's clutch in the way Reggie Miller was clutch. He's clutch the way only possibly Kevin Durant is clutch. If you're up 11 with three minutes left, you don't feel safe as long as Manu is on the court. He'll hit a three, steal the ball, get an and one, and then you're up five with an all of a sudden terrifying two minutes, 56 seconds to play. We can agree with putting Manu at 31 on this list, as long as we also agree that when it really counts, he's without question in the top five. He wins and then leaves you furious and cursing his name, and then contemplating how you can steal his moves. The flop, the two-step, the spinning of the ball, and always clutch. Manu can be imitated, but never duplicated. That's my tribute to Manu Ginobili, because, man, when Manu is gone, trust me on this, we are going to miss him something fierce. Well, that's all for this week's Edge of Sports podcast. Thank you so much to Michael McCann for making the time. Thank you to my producer, David Tigabu. Thank you to everybody out there listening. Thank you particularly to our Edge of Sports patrons who are being really generous and helping us do the kind of work that we want to do. If people want to listen to back episodes of the podcast, all you got to do is go to edgeofsportspodcast.com. Also, please Leave a little comment over at iTunes or Stitcher or your podcast app of choice. Give it a rating. All of that stuff makes a big difference in the algorithms of this podcast that I frankly do not understand. So please check out the Edge of Sports podcast today. And thank you to everybody listening. We are out of here. Stay frosty, everybody. Peace. <laughs>